As an antidote to paranoia, we should be content with the mysterious, the meaningless, the contradictory, the hostile, and most of all, the unexplainably warm and giving. Each of these things can help us to embrace the void. Pathetic earthlings, hurling your bodies out into the void without the slightest inkling of who or what is out here. Is life just some kind of horrific joke without a punchline? That we're all just biding our time until the sweet, sweet release of death? No! Don't save Riley! <laughs> Take her to the moon for me. Okay? Welcome, friends, to another episode of Embrace the Void, where we are both very high and very weird. I am your host, Aaron Rabinowitz, and my guest this week is Eric Davies, a PhD in religious studies and author of High Weirdness and many other worthwhile reads on various counterculture topics. This book was absolutely a revelation for me. It was kind of like listening to an anthropologist explain the unnamed concept behind the entire culture that I was raised in. But I also think it's a roadmap for how we got to where we currently are socially. So I'm very excited to discuss it. So welcome, Eric. Would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, void. Yeah, I figured you wouldn't have any problem with that particular activity. <laughs> so thank you so much for taking the time. I've, I've read this book twice now, or listened to the audiobook twice now, and I, I really do love it. it. You know, I've never had an experience with a book like this where every time I was like, are you going to include X next? And it just like showed up on the next page. So it was very, uh, very good connection for me. Do you want to give folks before we dive into like, what is high weirdness, a little bit of background about, uh, you know, where you're coming from in the book, you talk about um, how this tied into your, your studies a little bit, but maybe giving people a sense of your training and your approach to these kind of issues. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, uh, let's see. After college, where uh, I wrote my senior thesis on Philip K. Dick, I became a culture critic and wrote for quite a long time and then got my PhD in my 40s. And I was always going to write about Philip K. Dick because I, I had the, the good opportunity to write, not to write, to edit, help edit the exegesis of Philip K. Dick, which was this mind-numbingly complicated project of taking this, you know, millions of words that he wrote in his private metaphysical diary and somehow boiling them down to a still enormous book. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had a, you know, small but significant role in making that book come to pass and working with the main uh, editor, Pam, Pam Jackson. And that was a blast. And so I had like my fingers on this author that I had been reading since I was a teenager. And as a religious studies person, I was, my whole plan was to approach his work and his experiences from a religious point of view, rather than a literature or science fictional point of view. And I was always just going to write about the exegesis. I mean, it's so enormous. Dick is so fascinating. There's so much to stay, say still. And people hadn't really talked about the religious side that much, which is an interesting question in itself, because you know, mm -hmm. he would always, he, he would self-describe as a Christian after the early 60s, but people don't think of him as a quote-unquote Christian writer, and that's itself kind of interesting. Anyway, I was going to do this, and then I was already, had it all planned out, the different chapters, you know, I was ready to go, and you know, most people go to grad school, they don't know what they're going to do as their PhD, but I came in, I knew what I was going to do, and then really, literally, at the last minute, I was like, I don't want to spend three years inside Philip K. Dick's brain. I can't do this. Like I, <laughs> I, 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 pulled, I pulled back from the abyss, uh, mm -hmm. from, the, from the edge of the void, and more like the edge of the screaming abyss. And then I was like, well, what, what do I want to do? And one of the things that I had noted when I was thinking about Dick's famous religious experience in 1974, 2374, uh, mm -hmm. or the, the Vallis encounter, that he narrates in different ways in different books and he talks about endlessly in his exegesis 
was uh, there were some really interesting similarities between that and other weird experiences that people had in the early 1970s in the counterculture. Um, and I kind of started thinking about that. And I've always been a fan of the 70s as like a space, particularly the early 70s, as like its own unique period in a, a particularly American history uh, and, and the counterculture. You know, people think of, quote unquote, the 60s. And then sometimes they'll talk about how, well, the 60s really goes to about 1975 or 1973 or 1972 or whatever they're going to say. And but uh, there's, there's something lost in that story, which is what is particular and peculiar about the counterculture or what's remains of the counterculture in the seventies as it mutates into something else. Mm -hmm. Um, And in my view, it kind of starts to splinter and moves in different directions, but a lot of them are still pretty psychedelicized and, and really interesting to track. So I was always interested in the period and I figured, well, why don't we kind of invert the whole thing and try to get a paint, a big, a picture of this, early 70s period, and then talk about a f- some different experiences from different authors mm-hmm. that have these similarities and resonances. And so for me, the obvious ones were um, Terrence McKenna and his experience in La Chirera earlier uh, in the decade, and then Robert Anton Wilson's sort of narration of some of his experiences in the early 70s in his book Cosmic Trigger, which was also one of those mind-blower books like Vallis when I first read it. Um, and I was going to do more. I was going to do John Lilly, you know, some other things mm-hmm. that get mentioned in the book I was going to write more on, but it was, it was long enough as it is. So mm-hmm. it ended up being a kind of comparative study where I'm not like drawing like tight links between them, but it's more like showing how similar clusters of ideas and images and stories having to do with science fiction, having to do with Asian religion, having to do with ancient, ancient religion, how they were all kind of booted up as a way of trying to organize these remarkable religious slash mystical slash psychotic experiences that these people were kind of willingly bringing on to some degree. And so Mm -hmm. I still ended up writing the stuff I wanted to say about Dick but it was more constrained, more, more kind of historically located. And, you know, that's so that ended up being basically the scope of the project. And, uh, yeah. and then within that frame, the final thing to say is that I wanted to introduce a way of thinking about these wild experiences, mystical experiences, religious experiences um, outside of the environs of religion proper and try to play with ways of thinking about them that were not that that took them seriously but not literally meaning let's not just say this was psychotic or it was some you know extrusion mm-hmm. of their pulp fiction saturated minds that there was something going on there was some encounter there was some uh di- you know dimensional shift some inbreaking of uh, another order of reality but I'm not about ready to go down and start building up metaphysical systems that involve, like in Terrence McKenna's case, the transcendental object at the end of time, or with Phil Dick, like this vast active living intelligence system that's invading our planet from, you know, intergalactic space or whatever, all the kind of crazy ideas they came up with. I I didn't, I didn't want to like take them seriously, or I did want to take them seriously, but I didn't want to take them literally. And so that was kind of the, the, the play uh, that I was trying to do as a new kind of method or a, a different kind of method than what people usually bring, at least in a largely scholarly project uh, to right. these kinds of things. Yeah. And that all makes sense. It's it's surprising sort of to hear, you know, the way in which it comes together for you, because reading through it, I was like, these are all of my cultural touchstones. Like there's too missing and i say missing again in the same sense that you were describing that like there's nothing missing it's a giant book and there's plenty in there but like there were like two things that i that came to mind as part of this um that that weren't in there and we can talk about those a little bit but like the degree to which it mapped so much of what i was used to growing up culturally it was you know to me i guess feels like an external validation of there's some there's something here because it wasn't like you know that you and I were sort of coming to a very similar gestalt 
um, without like any intentional sort of movement on that. Now, um, I think it would be useful for us to try to define high weirdness at this point. And since you've mentioned Philip K. Dick, maybe using like one of his stories that you feel like sort of exemplifies it, we could talk about it that way. Or if you just want to kind of describe the key philosophy and we can look at some examples and go from there. Yeah, that's that's a whole thing. I before we do that, I did want to just acknowledge, like you, you know, that that this was you you felt con- confirmed and and sort of seen mm-hmm. by this book because of your own growing up and what your influences were, and that was really true for me uh, as well. I mean, Terrence came came later in my life, but but Robert Anton Wilson and Philip K. Dick, which I kind of started reading about the same time in the early eighties. Living in Berkeley, you know, right near where they were had had been spent time. Uh, you know, part of the book was to actually honor that world and that that current of sort of yeah. uh, not respectable thought. That, that well, I mean, that was you know. Yeah, my favorite moment in the book was one of those like, "Is he really going to do X?" And the, the what you were really going to do is the psychosexual mindfuck scene from the Illuminatus trilogy. And I was like, "Is that really where this is going?" And then you fully described it, and I was like, "This is this is the best thing ever." I'm so happy. Um, so yeah, it is very much yeah a, a specific resonance with very specific cultural touchstones. Yeah. So so on to the to the weirdness. Uh, so what I do in the book, and this was also, you know, part of part of my attempt to deal with, let's call it visionary experience, let's say, you know, because whether it's religious or spiritual or mystical, it's like they each have their pluses and minuses as terms. So this is called visionary experience. And one of my ways of trying to deal with it was to really emphasize the, the weirdness of it. Now, what does that mean? So to do that, I had to make the word weird. Uh, carry more weight than it normally does. And in a, and in a way, I was doing sort of uh, terminologically what what I just said I was doing mm-hmm. culturally, which is to go out of the the accepted zone, pluck a word that we use all the time that has a lot of very rich and interesting associations, but it's still kind of a throwaway word or a uh, mm-hmm. A sort mm-hmm. of uh, a room, where, uh, a word where we locate a lot of things we don't know what else to do with, kind of as just like a placeholder, and just and to pluck it out of that and bring it into the theoretical discussion and say, okay, let's make this word do something. So to do that, let's talk about what what elements it has or what dimensions um, it, it opens mm-hmm. up, and some of those are etymological, its roots in the idea of of fate. I like the use of Lovecraft, specifically his concepts of high weirdness. Absolutely. You know, so, you know, so it's that whole current of like what we call weird fiction. Why do we call it weird? Where does that, why, why do the, does, do the ancient ideas of fate become associated with this zone of the macabre and a certain kind of macabre, not a, not a classy macabre, something a little pulpier, mm. a little, um, g- more googly (laughs) more more adolescent even you know and then talking about weird comic weird in comic books and this idea of the weird as something that's also kind of immature almost i don't use that word but like adolescent is actually a really useful thing uh and and that it was and this what's that like puerile and the kind of like the yeah, way exactly. like to be That's, gross, and you know, you know? You th- and then it's not just a term for the description of certain kinds of stories like uh but also certain kinds of people i.e. I- certain social positions so he's a weirdo that those guys are weird like what are we saying there they're like ah oh, they're it's a little too much it's they're kind of on the edge it's a way of othering um, not yeah. unlike queer in some ways. I think there's some actually were some interesting resonances that I didn't go into very deeply because um, it's not a, sure. a field of expertise, but there's some interesting connections there. And even to the point that when you look back at weirdo in particular as a word, the mm-hmm. earliest associations tend to be with perversion. So weirdos were perverts in particular. So there's that kind of like, like you mentioned the, the my you know the 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 sex mindfuck scene in, in Illuminatus, it's like right. yes, a certain kind of sexuality is also in the picture as well. That's kind of weird. So that you have all this stuff going, and then there's like a whole other dimension 
that I hadn't, I'd noticed before, but I never really kind of drawn it together, which is like the way that physicists use the word weird, you know, Mm. that there are weird effects that some quantum effects are weird. And that, Mm. you know, that usage has a history. You can go back and you can say, okay, here's the, Here's this early analytic philosopher, Hilary Putnam, who uses it. Mm-hmm. Here's uh, an, uh, a pop, popular science writing, but actual physicist, Heinz Pagels, who uses it. Then it starts to take off. And now it's kind of widely used as a sign for that stuff in quantum physics that is profoundly counterintuitive. And so what do we do with it? And well, let's just call it for now quantum weirdness. And what I drew out of this was not necessarily something specific about quantum physics, though that is interesting and was certainly of interest to all the people I write about and anybody who Mm. is into this kind of stuff spends their time with like at least, you know, reasonably challenging popular science accounts of physics and maybe even going a little farther, which is true in my case, um, that, uh, that it was also a way of talking about something in nature something mm-hmm. in the world. And that was my, my secret key, was that on the one hand, weird fiction points us towards the supernatural, or let us say a mode of the supernatural that tends to be a bit more garish and material, like a, a corpse right. crawling out of a, 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 you know, out of a coffin is more, and then like looking up and he's got like a rock and roll t-shirt on it and goes, hey man, like that's weird. Yeah. But even Lovecraft's gods are material, you know, like he, exactly. he's a, you know, they were, they were being driven by that early um, modern materialism. So yeah, you know, like there is this view that like, there's something, ab- well, so this, I think ties in this question of what were they actually fighting against? Because if weirdness is a term that's going to have to be defined in relation to normals in some way, right. Uh, or normalcy, you know, that means that like, this is a counterculture and there has to be some culture that they are pushing back on. And I think a lot of folks interpret them as pushing back on materialism or science in favor of woo or magic. And there is some of that in there, but like, I think you do an interesting job of, of sort of parsing more the nuances of how they approach those things. So what do you see as the like, the thing they're really, really fighting against. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I mean, you, you raise a lot of issues. We could talk a lot about that relationship with, you know, you know, the way that people use the word materialism. And I tended to kind of think more about what I wanted to identify these guys as, as, as sort of naturalists, but expanded mm-hmm. naturalists. Like they, they were maybe going to mock uh, close-minded rationalists, who were like stuck on their kind of worldview, even though they sort of liked some of the logic or they liked some of the products of, of rationalism. Um, that's a good question where they're really pushing it. I mean, in a way it points to the problem with the word counterculture and the action, in some sense, the whole frame of it. Like I have a, a friend named Christian Greer, who's a, a another scholar of the, of the period of, of psychedelic, um, the psychedelic underground. And he has a whole rant against the word counterculture, partly because it forces you into this oppositional mode where that's attached to the thing that it's, that it's fighting against. And while that's certainly true to a certain degree, I mean, there's certainly an idea of like normalcy that is being rejected or, or a sort of limited um, conventional materialism that's being rejected. Uh, It also can sometimes like, um, uh, un- undermine the 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 aspects of this this current that's just purely positive, like which is just about curiosity, exploration, not knowing, uh, experience over um, co- you know concept, et cetera, et cetera. So, but but what? But you know, but it's still a good question. What I mean, I like in some in a case like someone like Philip K. Dick. There's not a lot of choice in the matter. I mean, the guy's mm-hmm. alienated from the get-go um, mm-hmm. as a person, as a non-neurotypical, as a introvert, as a weirdo. And so he can see what's limited in conventional consumer materialist America uh, and, you know, fight, you know, and uh, oppose evil as he perceives it, political evil, control, the black iron prison. 
Um, but in a way, he's kind of in the position of the rebel or the the uh, resistor from the beginning. There's a really interesting line in in that it's in the book that that McKenna has, where he talks mm-hmm. about how you know he 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 was a, a radical of sorts, more of an anarchist uh, than a leftist for sure, but you know participated in anti-war rallies and participated in. Berkeley goings on. And then he talks about sort of the defeat of that, the the perception of the defeat of that movement and how, well, if that Mm -hmm. didn't really work out, there's always DMT. Mm -hmm. And on our heads, we might think of those as two different categories, but there's a way in which it wasn't because one thing you can say about the 60s in the late 60s was there was a sense that reality itself, however you determined it, whether you thought of that largely politically or you thought about it as a metaphysical structure or a, a social structure, the reality was going to change like radically. Mm-hmm. In fact, human beings might be like in the beginning, LSD might be mutating us and turning us into right. new kinds of beings. And so there was a, a sense of that kind of millennialist transformation. And then where does it go? And so it goes in different directions in the 70s, kind of more minor key more fragmented, but it keeps going in certain ways. And so I, I think that that part of the, what all of these guys share is a kind of, um, you know, refusal of the, the norm as a known framework for what is a human mm-hmm. being, what's the nature of reality. So it's kind of like a questing forward, but also away from the certainties of, of uh, hippie mysticism or the certainties right. of you know, other, other kind of new age ideas. Um, yeah. I mean, this is sort of my sense is that it's almost, there's a kind of the core philosophy is, is like a very truly radical counterculture of like skepticism towards all information, but especially mainstream information. And so like, it seems like there's a lot of transgressing of both social and like epistemic norms in an attempt to try to, you know, in, in, you know, to come back to the kind of Gnosticism angle, like to, to get the kind of knowledge that is we're being prevented from getting because of those sort of limiting frames that get put on our perceptions. Absolutely. I mean, I think they all, I mean, if, here they, I would probably emphasize different things in their, uh, in their thinking, uh, different mm-hmm. sorts of, of influences, different ways that they used, uh, you know, philosophy. I think, you know, for example, like uh, McKenna was really into ecology and, and he was really into Whitehead. And so he had this kind of, he kind of perceived mm-hmm. that thing that other people see these days, that there's a, a sort of uh, respect for na- natural thingness and evolutionary uh, uh, outflow and some kind of mystical experience within within Whitehead, but he didn't, he never developed it very much. Like he never really, I think, developed his philosophical ideas, particularly. He was kind of, he kind of riff off of, and it was partly how did he use ideas? He sort of riffed off of them. He liked to yeah. speculate through them or kind of like, they're almost like jokes. Like he'll, that, that's the setup. And then he'll go do something um, with the idea. And, you know, he, he probably, he probably coded, Descartes more than anybody because he was obsessed with this <laughs> fake line that I could never find Descartes saying where oh, yeah. the angel tells him, you know, that you can conquer the world through number. So he loves science. That's the, you know, the thing is that McKenna really loved science and in a way thought he was kind of doing science um, in a kind of empirical way. Like I think there's a sense in which a lot of them were, I mean, in a phenomenological kind of way. Absolutely. Um, you know, a qualitative analysis rather than a quantitative, let's say, but I think, you know, they've been vindicated on a lot of that stuff in terms of the application of psychedelics and psychological treatment. And this is, you know, this comes to, like, I think a good place of discussing the applied of high weirdness. And, you know, I think we see it throughout our world and I want to talk about that some, but I just want to talk about it sort of the trade-offs of it first. It seems to me that the benefits of this approach have been fairly radically expansive thinking on a variety of fronts in a way that really has benefited a lot of people and changed our world. And we can talk about examples in a sec, but 
you know, one thing that I, I really think it's important to foreground is there's a high cost to this approach, both for the people who walk those paths and for the people around them and the people who believe this stuff in terms of, you know, when you really, when you're, you know, when you're radically transgressive about social and moral norms, you end up in a lot of places where people can be abused pretty heavily. And I do think that a lot of spaces that are the descendants of high weirdness are at high risk for like various kinds of abuse. How do you think about sort of those trade-offs and how to try to get like the good parts of high weirdness while avoiding the bad parts? I think I sort of, I, I think about this issue a lot and I put it in two kind of split it. One is the, the, the consequences for this kind of what I call in the book, a sort of high wire act or a, a tightrope walk for the individuals who are doing it for the psychonauts themselves without talking about the effects on the world around them. And one of the things that was really important for me in the book, and I think one of the things that was kind of fresh about it is that I took these experiences very seriously. I'm interested in the metaphysical dimensions, the spiritual dimensions, the ontological dimensions, the philosophical, the phenomenological, that's all really rich stuff. But I'm also interested in the way in which they're pathological, that the space that I'm pointing towards is one where psychopathology is part of the picture. And all three of these guys in different ways wrestled with and to some degree were swallowed up in uh, psychopathology. Like mm -hmm. Dick always had these issues. It's a mm -hmm. major theme in, in throughout his work. Uh, Cosmic Trigger, uh, uh, Robert Anton Wilson's sort of, you know, kind of memoir uh, uh, about his own experiences with brain, you know, uh, uh, attempting brain change through psychedelics and magic and weird thoughts. Uh, is explicitly about kind of entering a reality tunnel where he believes that he's in communication with aliens from Sirius and he lives in mm -hmm. this world for months and months and months. And then he kind of literally pulls himself out and he can look at it as something that he was in. And he doesn't call it madness, but it, it's what we it's still part of the kind of pathological continuum. And, and McKenna has his own uh, ways of wrestling with issues of, of psychosis in, in his work and, and trying to sort of like recover aspects of psychosis and, and, and see it as actually part of some po positive features, but also recognizing their dark side to different degrees. And in the book, I talk about this through this image that comes from, from the McKenna brothers of a, a tightrope walk. Mm -hmm. And the idea that you're like, you're, you're stepping away from the grounds of the familiar, from the grounds of consensus, and you're now you're on the the high wire and you're balancing. You got to keep your balance. And <laughs> some of that balance is skepticism. Maybe it's skepticism and courage. Uh, and you're like going farther and farther over the abyss, over your void, but mm -hmm. you can fall and they all fall. And part of what mm -hmm. the story in the book is, is the way that they all fell into delusion, into self-obsession, into inflation. And we see that over and over again. And one of the scary things about the psychedelic, I'll use their term, renaissance today, there's all sorts of problems with that word, but the revi current revival and expansion of it mm -hmm. is that, that the knowledge and the wherewithal to deal with the problems of inflation and delusion and the charisma that can come from delusion. And that's mm -hmm. where you start getting into the second part of your question, which is how people who aren't ready for this ride can get manipulated and hurt by other people who are psychedelicized in a problematic way, mm. whether they're doing it themselves and getting into weird scenes or they're just not quite ready for it. And, you know, the, for all its pathologies and crazy people and suicides and manipulatives and cult leaders and whatever, people who grew up in my experience and my understanding from studying this stuff for 30 years is like growing up inside the underground the counterculture, there were mechanisms and kind of rules of thumb and ways in which, again, for all its faults, that there were correcting mechanisms for some of these things. And I had, for a lot of reasons, those correcting mechanisms aren't as visible now, because on the one hand, 
hmm. all the powers that be the you know the 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 VCs, the pharmaceutical companies, the Instagram influencers, everybody's in the game everybody's interested in hyping it and hyping it as a panacea. And when you hype a panacea, you can't say, oh yeah, and by the way, you run a you know not insignificant risk of being of getting psychological inflation, of falling into delusion, of being susceptible mm-hmm. con- to conspiracy thinking, or of going nuts. Like that's not a very good sale. So mm-hmm. you know, so I, mean, the, I, I the hear risk a lot of at the end of those ads. They put some weird stuff at the end of those other like pharmaceutical advertisements. I feel like right. risk of delusions of grandeur would fit in there pretty effectively. <laughs> That's a good point. We'll, we'll probably see that in that way where they sp- they do it really fast. I would think they would, would probably just of grandeur re- rebrand it. They would probably just rebrand it as like a positive and make it like this is a you know a courage <laughs> pill or something. Um, you know. Yeah. So I, I think can, both yeah. those things are uh, you know mm-hmm. um, are are of concern. So then the question is, like in a way, since these things are out, they're not in, they're not inside the bubble of the underground uh, anymore what what do we do what do we do with the weird factor and the fact that these things are kind of weird and and it's a it's a challenging one because uh, you know on the one hand maybe it's it's safer if people naive people go into these experiences thinking that they are happy panaceas and that that idea and expectation will help you know will keep the guardrails up you know, as opposed to going like, who knows, man, you know, you know it could get really hairy out there. And then you're like, oh, geez, I thought this was a little bit more, you know, because there's the whole set and setting expectation placebo meta programming loop, which is also a big part of the story in high weirdness. And it becomes a little difficult to do. But my belief is, of course, that people are going to encounter these things, whether they expect them or not, at least some individuals will, um, and that that mm-hmm. will have a kind of feedback sort of loop. Um, and one of the things I really like about all these guys, and again, they weren't perfect paragons of it by any stretch of the imagination, even Robert Anton Wilson, who was the, who liked to play the, the sort of skeptic free thinker is that while they all did have a soft spot, let's say for certain kinds of esoteric and, and metaphysical thinking even supernatural ideas, which I must admit that I have myself in certain ways, um, mm-hmm. that nonetheless, they, they also created a kind of character type or a sort of approach to things where there's the questioning and, to, and elements of skepticism are part of the way you go forward. In fact, it's part of the way you sort of stay sane is by going, is that really the case? Are these guys talking to me from the other dimension really? Tell, are they really what they say they are? Or do I really believe that X and Y are the case? Um, you know, and Dick would question his own ideas just, you know, obsessively, you know, in a way that itself was almost kind of pathological because he couldn't rest on anything. But you can't call accuse him of being a philosopher. But yeah, you can call yeah. it a yeah, with- too if you want. Um, <laughs> I mean, you exactly. Know, me personally, like I don't come from a needing or wanting like the spiritual or the supernatural side of the the material. I you know I, I read all of that like you would say, sort of metaphorically, but not you know, but seriously, but metaphorically. Um, right. But I come from the like question everything philosophical place, and so I'm very sympathetic to that part of it. Though I do think it also kind of raises some risks and i think you've sort of explained here a little bit how like what is a principle of questioning everything gets very weird when that gets mainstreamed and like codified and and like sanctified and you know sanitized for popular consumption um we've talked a little bit about some of the ways in which high culture has popped up in the modern world how do you you know when i was reading this it really was like wow this really did win the culture war in a way that for good and for bad in a sense. And like, do, where do you see any other kind of like crucial fingerprints of high weirdness in the way people, you know, act and think in the world today? What, I mean, like stuff that's taken for granted now almost that would have been core to their views and, and like an anathema to everyone else back then. Well, the, I, mean, I think the most obvious and sort of pressing example is, and it is a, a blessing and a curse, probably, well, in some ways more of a curse, but it, it you know, it's, it's part of something understandable is, is the kind of growth of, well, the sort of simultaneous growth of a certain kind of prankster attitude towards mm-hmm. um, reality constructs, 
that comes specifically and more directly out of Robert Anton Wilson and the Discordians more so than than mm-hmm. Dick or or McKenna. Um, Dick was another kind of trickster in in terms of how the books function themselves because I think that they're they're set up in a way to draw you in. They're they're mindfuck right. books. They're designed right. to mindfuck. They're, they're not they're not troll. They're not like internet right. troll in the way that like Wilson is like the proto internet troll. Right. Exactly. Though there's a trolling. Literally, you know, it's the same kind of behavior that you see in in the discord in discordian. You know, the real world discordians and and Wilson uh, a willingness mm-hmm. to prank hard. To pull the rule. We have a lot to answer for on that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and, said, and like then, you know, Discordian. we see where that goes. And then associated with that, though, is a sort of mainstreaming of, of conspiracy culture. Because if you're in if you're into this stuff, you know, of course, you, along the way you get into conspiracy because there's an element of paranoia in all of them. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's an element of, uh, there's even, and there's playful sides of paranoia or there's a kind of like, love hate relationship or a perversity even in kind of paranoia and like conspiracies have a kind of for a certain kind of intellect conspiracies have a perverse quality because it's like well maybe mm-hmm. this is the way it is wow and you get kind of a cheap thrill out of the possibility the that inside, we're all inside yeah. of them you know blah 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 and then you're like yeah but i'm not gonna you know i'm not gonna i'm not gonna hold also, on to that because i was gonna say you don't mention it in the book as much but they also lived through some pretty real conspiracy stuff right like You've got oh, yeah. the civil rights era. You've got, you know, things like Watergate that really crack open people's perceptions about what people in power can do and will do. Oh, absolutely. No, I, I even I think I address that to a fair amount I when I talk about the yeah. 70s and mm-hmm. the and the, uh, like Wilson's experience. It's in the anti-war movement in Chicago in the late 60s mm-hmm. where he talked about you're you know, you're an activist. You're working with a group of people and, you know that there are plants, you know, <laughs> right. that people are, some people are not. And then it's like that the paranoia is just part of what the zone is. And of course people are, are taking speed and smoking pot and taking out acid and like all of those things like lend themselves to paranoia in different ways. So it's, it is part of the mix and part of the political mix and, you know, in a, in a different way than it is now, but it's also part of our reality mix in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, it's just, it might be manipulated um, behind the information flow, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, yeah. And do you find it interesting? You know, I, I, I think it's a misconception that they were all lefties. I think a lot of them were more like libertarians in a lot of ways, but it's interesting that in the modern era, that kind of anti-government conspiracism in particular is much more prevalent on the right than the left. Like on the left, you see anti-corporate you know, anti conspiracism, but a lot less anti-government conspiracism. Do you have thoughts about like, how the right kind of absorbed that part of high weirdness? Yeah, it's it's a very interesting thing. I mean, you know, when that when the book you know came out, I was like, oh, you know, I think I'll you know Philip K. Dick was always the most famous of those people, so I thought I'd spend most of my time talking about Philip K. Dick and then Terrence McKenna, who's become more you know famous and loved as psychedelics have gotten more popular. A lot of young people kind of listen to Terrence McKenna tapes the way that an earlier generation listened to Alan Watts tapes or something. I mean, he's, there's a sort of audio presence that Terrence has and a, and a kind of attraction uh, to both the wiggy ideas and to his humor and to his mm. funny voice and his storytelling and, you know, became very prominent. But in the end, I ended up talking mostly about Robert Anton Wilson because, uh, you know, QAnon was in the air and I, I started talking about that. And then I ended up like doing tons of podcasts just to be like, Okay, kids, mm-hmm. conspiracy theory 101. And I got, you know, like, let's just think a little bit about what does it mean to actually think. And, you know, there's sort of like basic ways of trying to introduce more skepticism or more kind of metacognition and how you think about narratives, et cetera, et cetera. Just because I was watching all these people in kind of like psychedelic, right, new age yoga worlds, which is, you know, part of the world that I'm that I'm in going into QAnon, like with no, just like with great alacrity with like the brakes were off. Here we go. And I was like, Oh my God, this is depressing. Like, how is this happening? (laughs) And so a lot of the work I did was trying to kind of talk about where the connections were. And there's a lot of, you know, there's a whole political story to be told about the anti-state 
conspiracyism mm-hmm. and how that goes. And you have to go into the history of conspiracy theory and its relationship to the right and how it, yeah. you know, in a way it's kind of a, essentially a right wing form. You know, if you take it back to say, you know, a, a place that a lot of historians will start is the French Revolution. Right. So the forces the behind the French Revolution are these nefarious modernists who are de- destroying tradition. Da, 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 you can da, just da. say Jews, it's faster. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and then you get into the whole, uh, you know, which we, and now we're in it, you know, now we're in it again. I mean, I was, I, yeah. I like to read, I like to read um, intelligent, sort of more old school conservatives, uh, uh, just for interest and I learn things and you know, sometimes find things that I agree with. And I was reading one the other day, which will go unnamed. And he was Mm -hmm. like talking about a kind of Hobbesian view of the world and Carl Schmitt and the idea Mm -hmm. that the state, you kind of make a contract with the state where they get exclusive use of violence, but they'll protect you against a dog eat dog world. And, and, and this was going forward and and he was starting to like go forward. And I thought he was going to lead it to like January 6th as like the Mm -hmm. example of, but he doesn't, he went back to the like, the Rodney, I mean, the riots around, uh, uh, you know, the, in the summer before and, mm-hmm. oh, um, the Floyd, riots, yeah. Floyd riots. And, uh, he was like, like, Oh my God, this was the abrogation of the state's contract to da, da, da. And I was like, Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. That, that whole like pair, you know, the sort of way uh-huh. that anything that's eroding that, that kind of law and order is seen as some, as a, a, a nefarious insidious, yeah cosmopolitan you know that whole that whole well, kind of yeah, matrix i think yeah i think the modern rise of right-wing conspir- conspiracism is directly tied to the civil rights movement being successful like i think from that period onward you see increasing need to explain why society is rapidly changing in ways that they don't like and you end up with that government conspiracism stuff um one other person i think i, I love to tie in on, on all of this was someone who was really influential to me growing up which is bill hicks the comedian who died very young, but was very much, in my opinion, the, the like the, the most important comedian for high weirdness. Um, one of the, you know, passages that sticks with me so hard from him is when he talks about his experience doing what Terrence McKenna called a heroic dose or five dried grams and, you know, squeegeeing his eye quite cleanly. Um, but, you know, I have to come to terms with the fact that Bill was also like a proto incel and he was a conspiracy theorist in a not ironic kind of way, the way I thought he was, I think, when I was younger, like I thought he was joking. But I really do think he he believed a lot of that stuff. And I think a lot of these guys did. And like that, that is a severe cost that I think that kind of radical skeptic journey, it seems like, can take people on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the things that I had to do personally being somebody who kind of came out of this tradition if you will or enjoyed it or was influenced by it um was sort of coming to terms with how things you know how history changes and Mm -hmm. there are certain changes that history goes through where gestures modes of thought procedures that in themselves haven't really shifted have such a different political valence that you got to you got to change your relationship to them so in some mm-hmm. ways significantly maybe even 180 degrees and so when you think about someone like the way I would talk about Bill Hicks is like the the break I, the 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 point though is that like he was still at a time where there was room to have those elements including a serious conspiracy theory element but there was a kind of cultural mm-hmm how would I call it? Like, a, it, it was, it, it was not weaponized in mm-hmm. the same way. Yeah. And, and part of the problem about where we are now is that because of the internet and because of social media and because of the sophistication of kind of, you know, uh, uh, reality manipulation, that local ambiguous mixtures uh, that have local singular eccentric elements are easily captured by these large scale polarizing dynamics mm-hmm. so that you, you get sucked up right. into Pulled it. So if Bill air, Hicks came out, right. right. Yeah. So if Bill Hicks started and he was just doing Bill Hicks, the same routines, exactly the same stuff. Cause they're still funny. He's doing it. Mm-hmm. Boom. Like his 
openness to that stuff might actually suck him up and he starts doing anti-woke stuff and then boom, he's actually just an, a, a, a really funny psychedelic anti-woke, like Joe Rogan, if he was funny kind of guy, like, sure. which is, I, I can't even say because it's such an insult to Bill Hicks, who I hold so highly. Um, but in a way, you yeah. can see what I'm talking about. And that's yeah, that I mean, weird people, thing people about joke how- that Alex Jones is Bill Hicks that like, you know, Billy Hicks faked his death and became Alex Jones as a conspiracy theory. But you, Whoa, can see you know, the he's, he, you know, you can see the absolutely. The he's in Waking Life. You know, he's in right. the the Richard Linkletter movie. Well, so you look at you look at yeah. Slacker, and so that's a great example. Like Slacker, that mode, which is sort of my generational mode of like weird ideas, and there's kind of an underground. We're kind of like lazy. We don't really know how to like change things, but we're going to keep stuff going. In that world, which was, you know, partly my world coming out of the 80s and early 90s, there was like room for things that are now completely heinous, not because we didn't think they were heinous, but it's just part of it was just a transgressive culture in a way that things have Mm -hmm. like splintered and become weaponized so differently that you can't sustain those modes anymore. So you can't look at, um, you know, the, the strategies of a Discordian now and not see their implications. But it's mm-hmm. important to not just look back there and go, oh, they were already crypto fascists or something because it, right, it's like right. worlds change. Yeah. And I do agree with that. And I like I don't have a desire. You know, I, I'm working on a piece about Bill where I'm, you know, wrestling with the good and the bad. But I don't think that we have to do away with the good because of the bad. You mentioned Joe Rogan. I think there's a lot to be critical of there as a kind of clearinghouse for very dangerous conspiracism. And that that's sort of the last piece that I, I want to talk about before we run out of time today. But to get to it, I think we need to tie in the religion stuff that you've mentioned. You are a religious studies person after all. Um, I agree with you that it's weird that people don't treat Philip K. Dick as a Christian writer because of how central it seems to me. And I agree with you, this Gnosticism in particular seems very crucial to him. Um, now, my also my understanding is that there is some evidence of correlation between religious belief itself and conspiracism. Um, and I do sometimes joke that like the devil is the greatest conspiracy theory of all. Um, and Bill, you know, Alex Jones talks about the devil all the time, like he's the master of all conspiracies. Um, but I think if you look at Gnosticism in particular, it's a form of Christianity that could really lean into that kind of conspiracism angle. I, do you feel like there is a direct connection between kind of Gnostic high weirdness in particular and conspiracism? That's a complicated, I mean, first I always got to say the caveat because I am a, a, I did get a PhD in religious studies and inside the field of religion, what quote unquote Gnosticism is, is a really, really complicated topic and people really argue about it and people mean very different things when they say that more than most, you know, scholars say that about everything, but more than most sure. things, this, this one's it a has one. that. Uh, it has that trickiness to it. What The way that I would an- answer your question is that it's very clear that there is a Gnostic in the sense of re- referring to a body of texts, images, archetypes, narrative forms, that there's a Gnostic dimension to the, the to contemporary conspiracy theory that's sort of undoubted. And you could even talk mm-hmm. large, more largely just that there's an esotericism to it. Mm-hmm. But the the Gnostic idea that there is sort of that there are particularly the idea of the archons, which is a mm-hmm. even a term that over the years, over the last, I want to say, 10 years became more and more visible in itself. So here they're using a term that comes from mostly Gnostic texts. It's in the Bible, too, in that way. In Paul uses it in that in that sense. But. The idea of a ruler, which is what the word archon is, which is different than a demon. Like a demon is a fully supernatural character. An archon, yeah, it has a supernatural dimension, but but it has more of a political sort of um, mm. uh, a controller is a good thing or a, a, a bureaucrat, basically. And so people start using the term now to talk about the control factor, you know, the media the pharmaceutical company, the genetic engineering, the global elite. It's like, yeah, they're, I mean, it's almost boring to say, oh yeah, they're worshiping demons. You're like, ah, what? They're doing a little satanic ritual. God, they did all that, you know, 50 years ago. But the archon idea is much more pressing. And that's more of a specifically 
mm. Gnostic idea that in that our fallen world is controlled by lower entities who are working for the demiurge, and all of them are resisting or blocking out the the higher the higher god, and that mm-hmm. our goals. So you kind of wake up and you realize that the archons are running the place, and you got to get out. And for for some you know, groups that we would call the Gnostics is, you know, you get out because you got to get out of matter. You got to go to the high heavens. You got to get out of the cosmos. You got to get out of the astrological wheel that's, that's determining some, some your fate. Sorrow almost in some way. Yeah, it's, just, it's it, no, it can be the same kind of model. So in some sense, I mean, if you bring up samsara, it's a really basic across the board kind of religious feature. And at that, at that point, it becomes a little bit less useful to kind of make the connection because you're like well there's always like something wrong and then like mm-hmm. the religion is saying yeah there's a way to do something or discover it's, something it's an explanation for an better. unjust world right like it's you know we want to we want to claim the universe is just because we want to believe in a just god so what is yeah. the explanation well there's some unjust entity fighting god or something like that yeah. right but there's another feature of the gnostic thing that that is worthwhile in terms of conspiracy theory that's a little subtler and and mm-hmm. int- and i think more more interesting in some ways which is that the gnostic knows and what they what they know, what they wake up to, is that this is actually the case. But they're an elite; they're an elect. Most mm-hmm. people don't know, and so right. part of the appeal of conspiracy theory is, of course, that you are discovering the secret. You find it, and the inner, you find the people. And then once you once it clicks for whatever weird socio biological consciousness roll of the dice reason it clicks then you are given this extraordinary gift as a suffering human being which is like i know what the problem is it's not me i have a story about why i'm alienated miserable don't have a girlfriend because they are against me and i know so i'm better than everybody and then me and then with me and my friends who also know we can be the jet, you know, the Jedi. We can be the, mm-hmm. the the saving remnant, the last rebels against the evil empire. And there's nothing more satisfying than that. That's why in politics everybody just pl- l- frames themselves as victims. Right. Yeah. And this you're is, yeah. What you've described there actually really gets at the like heart of my concern with the sense making community. And like the connections between them and this like Gnosticism stuff, you know, so David Fuller is the one who, who provided this to me. I've you know listened to him and, and very, you know, Padua and, and Peterson, and they often are talking about these kind of Gnostic ideas, logos and all these sorts of things. I think Joe Rogan also counts as a sense maker in this sense and is like also promoting what he thinks is like ways to get out of the, the, the false world and into the real world psychedelics and all that kind of thing. Um, so it seems like all of them are absorbing that stuff. And I think there's a, that, that that is a direct cause, not the only, but one direct cause of what I would say is a higher than average rate of conspiracism spirals amongst sense makers, especially in leadership positions. You know, Peterson, Rogan, these folks like they really, really go into into like dangerous, bad places and this kind of stuff. And, you know, I'm curious if you feel like there is like that is part of that Gnostic um, ideology and, you know, how you see any way kind of around those problems. Yeah, that's a, that's a toughy one. I mean, I think that whether or not the term Gnostic is useful at this point, um, Mm -hmm. it's hard to say, you know, what you were saying about like the esoteric kind of idea that like, there's a lot, there's a lot in the sense making world of talk of things like plan B getting outside of plan A and, you know, a kind of, they, they, you know, they'll be very humble about it on, 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 in video, but a very kind of we're the elect, you know, we are seeing through the illusion kind of mentality. Um, yeah. That feels more hubristic than sort of their, their brand would let on potentially. Yeah. I, I agree with that, that, uh, that critique for some of the, some of the figures, uh, more, more than others for sure. sure. Um, uh, uh, and I, I've had uh, conversations with, um, uh, uh, Doug Rushkoff that touch on some of this kind of stuff too, just some concerns about the, and, and where I come from it is, is, and here I'm kind of maybe leaving aside the, the specific question of the, of the Gnostic, but it's, 
it's this general problem. Well, let, let's go back. The the one of the things that I would talk about when I would talk about conspiracy theory in this, like trying to you know trying to uh, lure people away from the from the the abyss, uh, mm-hmm. is like is that if you're going to sign up for being a rebellious skeptic, then you have to be very aware of where you stop and you should probably immediately begin to question that because what Mm. you see then is people. So let's take this idea further. I've, I've discovered the conspiracy. It now explains my misery and me and my friends are the Jedi's against the empire. Well, well, where are you getting information? Wait, who, wait. So some, Weird guy from Wales on YouTube is explaining how if you like stand on a mountain, you can tell that actually the earth is flat Mm -hmm. because you can do these things. And then you look over here and you have like hundreds of years of, yeah, you're like, whoa, man, like, why would you ever put like that cognitive move? Mm -hmm. Um, and and so part of my thing was like, and this is, I think is actually part of high weirdness is that it's and it's not a, it's not exactly an answer because it leads you into the void, which mm-hmm. is like, well, actually, once you've discovered the magic of a certain kind of ontological skepticism, in a way, you can't stop, and it doesn't mean that you don't land places that are pragmatic or have content or are a position or offer an ethics and all those things. Cause I think you can, but that you're, you've now, you have a high bar <laughs> and, mm-hmm. but most people aren't capable or seemingly want to take on that degree of ambiguity. And so they get lost halfway between leaving the consensus and accepting the radical contingency, open-endedness, you know, ontological mm-hmm. pluralism. Uh, we're, you know, we're all like hurtling through the void together, trying to like offer signals to each other to try to, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's sure. a weird situation we're in, and I think that, um, but that's not like, and you know, so so when you, but when you get somebody like some of these sense makers, uh, I'll just I'll just leave it vague. But some of these mm-hmm. sense makers, you know, what people respond to is that they occupy the position of the one who knows they start speaking they're very clear they're very confident they yeah and they have and but i would even because there's different kinds of i mean guru i i like i don't mean that i don't mean that in a purely pejorative sense i mean that right you know technical sense sure sure that that and but there's something specific in this domain or and especially in like in like podcast discourse land of like the articulation and the discourse of the one who knows. And for me, you know, I can't, I, I, I can't occupy, like that's an, not an available position to me because of the way that I have experienced psychedelics, philosophy, religious experience, falling in love, you know, having horrible things happen, you know, all, whatever, like knowing history, like there's no way, like it, it becomes like, it's, it's like a sponge, but then where the action is for influencing is knowing, like not knowing is not much of a, is not a great influence on people. So when you ask about like, well, what, what do we do? How do you actually kind of do that? And I think there are thinkers who are very good. Can I give a good example? I mean, I just, it's more like people I know personally. That's what's so weird is like people I know in my life who are very philosophically sophisticated, politically critical. They know history. They know things, you know, they know psychology, da, da, da. And yet there's a humility and an unwillingness to play the guru. They might play the expert in a particular field. Like some of the Mm -hmm. smartest people I know, there's like, there's a few people I would describe as being kind of brilliant, maybe even geniuses in a certain somewhat broken, you know, spectrum way. And some of the ones I, I, I love the most, they'll, they're like, I mean, they're really brilliant. And yet they're profoundly humble. And they're like, God, yeah, the more you know, the more you realize just how incredibly fucking complicated everything is. Oh my God, it's so complicated. It's right. so complicated. Now that doesn't help you figure out how to get from plan A to plan B to plan C. Like it's not very 
helpful as a position, but unless Mm -hmm. you have that in you as an ethos or as a culture, then I just don't see how you avoid replicating the, the one who knows the guru problems, the, the secret elite who actually can control things. So it's like, like Tristan Harris's critique is great, but I don't want to join his part. You know, I don't, I don't want to, that's, that's, I like people who don't really know what they're talking. You know what I mean? It's like, it's this weird, it's a, it's very difficult. And I don't know, I don't know. More than answers maybe would be the way that Nagel puts yeah. it. Yeah. And, and, and there's kind of a, and there's also, there's the way that the, even if there's like, even if there's clearly the brilliant person in the room, if, that that there's a way of not knowing in in that person that forces a more dialogic and dynamic relationship with the people around them. So even like mm. let's you mentioned a guru, I'm going to say like a good spiritual teacher. One feature of this strange character, and I do think they exist, is that they have a certain kind of authority and gravitas that motivates you to sort of model another way of being that has a kind of higher bar to it. Mm. But at the same time, they're very good at both undermining and giving away their power or throwing it back on to you. Not so Mm -hmm. much that then you're just hanging out with another person who doesn't know what's going on like you, but enough, you know, and so there's a kind of sweet spot. And I think there are intellectual forms of, of that, as well. And that, and that partly have to do with the way in which you build collectivity. I mean, the problem with some of the sense makers I've been on like podcasts with some, and they're not actually good about having a conversation. You can't, you can't talk. You can't like chat. What about that? I don't know. What do you think? You know, it's like, it's not, that's not what's happening. It's like you're waiting for your turn to offer the thing. And I'm like, maybe that thing is brilliant. Maybe it's a better plan than I could possibly come up with. And God, you know, Lord knows we need some plans around here. Uh, but at the same time, they just immediately start reproducing the same problem dynamics. So what do you do? Well, I actually think that's a really great open-ended, awkward, slight pessimism with a little bit of comedy for us to wrap on. So that's really on brand for us. So, so thank you so much, Eric. This has been a lot of fun. Um, thank you for sticking around a little bit for a little bit of VIP content as well. If folks enjoyed all of this weirdness and want a little bit more, come join us over on Patreon. But before we leave, why don't you let folks know where they can find all your good content and whatnot? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have a website uh, called technosis.com, T-E-C-H-G-N-O-S-I-S.com. That was in the name of my first book, which came out literally 25 years ago, and yet it's still in print, and the kids still read it, or at least some of them. Uh, and uh, there's just a plethora of material on this site. I've been on the on the web since the mid-90s, and so mm-hmm. there's just tons of material all over the place um, if people like to dig through archives, including my podcast, which is called Expanding Mind, which ran for 10 years um and uh, some people liked uh mm-hmm. and then i also um i have just a, a kind of i do a sub a, a sort of low-key substack called burning shore mm-hmm. um and those are the kind of two main things uh there you can find find me on online yeah when i mentioned that i was interviewing you a friend of mine linked me to techno pagan which was one of your early, very popular pieces that I think influenced a lot of folks. So, you know, folks can check that one out as well if you want to get into the deep cuts. Um, but yeah, Eric, it's been a really uh, a blast. I really appreciate you writing a book explaining, you know, the culture I, I didn't know I grew up in. Um, and yeah, folks, stick around, hang out, have some more fun. We'll, we'll chat some more about some weird stuff. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make this show possible. Thanks to our new monthly voidlings, Dizit Sma and Mark Devlin. And as always, I'd like to thank our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, givetomodestneeds.org, then visit deepfakestop.com, Alex Beneshek, Serious Inquiries Only, Lauren Shielding, Dude, Fix the Vote, a wise Zen one said, you can't be neutral on a moving train. Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And all the thanks to our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Inconsistently Disappointed in Humanity. If you'd like to support the show, 
please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space, with its new co-host, Callie Wright of the Queer Splaining Podcast. While you're at it, check out our wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons' Film Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVpod or email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and bonus VIP content. Most of all, no matter how normy you think you are, you are the void and the void is you. Mm-hmm.